Welcome to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Dr. Rutland is a world-renowned leadership expert. He is a New York Times best-selling author, and he has served as the president of two universities. The Leader's Notebook is brought to you by Global Servants. For more information about Global Servants, please visit our website, globalservants.org. Here is your host, Dr. Mark Rutland. The question might be asked, was Abraham really a prophet? And did he have anything to do with kings? Hello, this is Mark Rutland, and welcome to The Leader's Notebook. I'm so glad you've joined me for this episode of The Leader's Notebook because this is an extremely important teaching on our relationship with powers of the present age, powers that are around us. I use the term kings. That might mean generals, armies, politicians, presidents, whatever it is. How do we as servants of the Most High God, relate to those in positions of secular power. There is hardly a lesson in this whole series that's more pregnant with implications than this one on Abraham. My suspicion is that if you were to ask a million contemporary Christians to list as many prophets as they could think of, almost none of them would list Abraham, would put Abraham on the list. And yet, he is a prophet And he is a prophet that deals with probably as many kings or more kings than any of the other prophets. I'm in the middle of this long series on the leader's notebook based on my new book of kings and prophets. I want you to have that book. I I hope you're enjoying this series. If you've missed some of the previous episodes, they're all archived. You can get them. I hope you'll listen to every single one of them and stay up with the series on of kings and prophets. But I want you to have the book also. At the end of this podcast, the announcer is going to tell you how you can get as many copies as you need for you and your friends. Christmas shopping is coming up, all that. I want you to have as many copies as you need. Uh, you can get them directly from the Leader's Notebook or other places, and that announcer will tell you how to get those. In the book, I uh, discuss the reality that Abraham is listed among the prophets as the Jewish people reckon prophets. And my contention in the book, my my point in the book is how prophets related to kings. So Abraham qualifies. Let's take one example, and that is the conflict that Abraham had with 10 kings as enemies and one king that he was helping. I'm sure you'll remember that Abraham's nephew, Lot, had moved to Sodom where he had taken up some position of of authority, a judge apparently, and had begun to live a compromised life in the midst of Sodom. I'm not going to deal with Lot's uh, sin or his compromise there. That's, That's a different story. But then Sodom is attacked by a confederation of 10 kings. And the town is looted, and many of its citizens are kidnapped and taken hostage, uh, presumably to be taken elsewhere and made into slaves. Among those kidnapped is Lot. That word reaches Abraham, who is, remember, a wonderfully wealthy and very powerful sort of um, desert chieftain. And he assembles his hired men, who also double as militia, 
arms them. They ride in pursuit of this uh, small army that kidnapped all of these hostages from Sodom, and they defeat those people, defeat those kings, and rescue the, the people of Sodom, including, of course, Lot and his family. As they are coming back with those people, the king of Sodom comes out to meet Abraham and to talk with him, to thank him for the rescue and to thank him in such a practical way to offer him all of the gold and all of the accumulated loot that the attacking kings have taken out of, how they've sacked Sodom. The king is going to say, let me have the people and you take all the loot. As Abraham returns from this shocking victory, he overwhelms 10 kings with his own sort of household militia, his private army. The king of Sodom is there to greet him and, and ready to make a, this generous proposal, which he subsequently did. However, before the king of Sodom could say a word, another king, so the 12th king in the story, the 10 kings that Abraham fights, the king of Sodom makes number 11, and now a 12th king, this mysterious king named Melchizedek suddenly appears. His appearance is in a truly intriguing passage of scripture. Melchizedek actually interrupts Abram's interaction with the king of Sodom. In the middle of Abram's interaction with the king of Sodom, Melchizedek, who is called the king of Salem, the king of peace, draws Abram aside, and it appears in scripture. Let me just read to you a brief passage of scripture from Genesis chapter 14. Then Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God the Most High, and he blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abraham by God, Abram, if you will, by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies, meaning Abraham's enemies, Abram's enemies, into Abram's hand. Then it says, Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So this mysterious priest king, Melchizedek. So you have a priest king meeting a Bedouin, if you will, not Bedouin, but a, a desert chieftain warrior prophet. It's an unusual, unusual meeting. Melchizedek serves Abraham bread and wine. Doesn't that sound familiar? This is particularly significant since Melchizedek is also called a priest as well as a king. Then Abram tithes to Melchizedek. We as Christians, we don't have any problem with the idea of Abram tithing to a man who is called the priest of the Most High God. But in rabbinical writings through the centuries, there's been a great deal of controversy and debate about who tithes to whom in this story. Because you see, in Hebrew, the pronouns used are interchangeable. It simply reads, he tithed to him. That's all. Hebrew scholars have only that to go on. We Christians, however, also have a reference to this story in the New Testament book of Hebrews, which tells us specifically Abram gave the tithe of everything that he had. So not having the book of Hebrews, the rabbis have fought for hundreds and hundreds of years over who is tithing to whom. Frankly, 
it makes more sense that Abram would tithe to Melchizedek. Why would Melchizedek tithe to Abram, a man that he had just met, who had no priestly role? You wouldn't tithe to this desert shepherd warrior. So we take the story as it is. Abram is served bread and wine, communion. He then tithes to this mysterious priest called Melchizedek. Of course, this interaction is a prefiguring of Jesus' high priestly role, which we learn about in Hebrews chapter 7. But that's beyond our purpose here. What is more germane to the point of this particular book that I'm teaching you about, what happens when Abram turns back to the king of Sodom, who, remember, is prepared to make Abram this offer. You take all the loot that you gained from defeating those foreign kings, just give me the people. Then steps in Melchizedek, they celebrate communion, have this intimate moment, Abraham tithes, and then he turns to the king of Sodom, and Abram answers this, you take everything. I don't want anything you've got. It's interesting that he uses a, a Hebrew parallelism. It means an idiomatic way, familiar at the time, of sort of saying from one extreme to another. So in other words, I don't want anything from start to finish, from beginning to end, from one side to the other. We should remember why Abram said this. He had taken a vow with a raised hand before, quote, the Lord God, most high creator of heaven and earth. He would accept nothing that belonged to the king of Sodom, not even a thread or a shoelace. No one. Certainly the king of Sodom, that famously immoral place, would ever be able to say that he had made Abram rich. Abram did not want anybody in that horrible place, including the king himself, to, to ever claim that he had enriched Abram in any way. That, that was Abram's devotion to God, and that was Abram's character. So what do we learn from this? Some kings you simply must avoid. We can imagine that the king of Sodom had probably drawn Lot into his inner circle, into his clutches. He made deals with Abram's nephew Lot. He entangled him into the culture of Sodom. Lot became more and more compromised, more and more drawn into the, the culture of Sodom, if not into its sexual practices. We don't know that, but at least into the compromised culture of Sodom. Lot was more or less part of Sodom, more. Therefore, the king of Sodom certainly assumed he could do the same thing to Abram. He couldn't, and this may be part of the reason for the story of Melchizedek appearing right where it does. Before the king of Sodom can make an offer that likely has strings attached, Melchizedek steps in. He serves Abram what we understand to be communion. Then Abram tithes to Melchizedek, which indicates Abram was honoring God with his wealth, his own wealth, not money that he had taken from Sodom, acknowledging God as the provider of all that Abram had and his protector in the battle which had just happened. It isn't surprising then that immediately after this, Abram turns to the king of Sodom and says, I don't want anything you've got. Clearly, Abram knew the character of the king of Sodom and of the vile place that he ruled over, and Abram wanted nothing to do with it, particularly having just 
been newly sanctified by the ministry of Melchizedek and by making an offering through a priest of God to God. In a freshly holy state, if you will, in a, in a fresh state of grace, Abram knew that he wanted nothing to do with wickedness and he did not want to be prospered by Sodom. Now notice also, Abram does not hold the other people who fought with him to his level of ethics. He doesn't say, nobody's going to take anything. He had brought his own soldiers to the recent fight. 318, in fact, in all uh, the book of Genesis tells us, as well as other local clans. While he wouldn't take any of the loot from Sodom, Abraham says, let them have whatever they want. In other words, he didn't expect them to live by his ethical decisions. He made his decisions known, certain that they were the right thing for him to do. It was as though he was saying, this is where I am. There is great power in this. There is also power in avoiding the legalism of insisting that others measure up to your ethical commitments. The ultimate lesson in all this for us today as 21st century believers is a simple truth. There's only one king worthy of worship. This understanding comes to us by knowing who Melchizedek is. He is mentioned in the Bible in only three places. It's interesting. We know almost nothing about him, and he's so important. He is mentioned in Genesis, Psalms, and the book of Hebrews. So why is pondering his story worth our while at all? Because our Lord Jesus Christ is called our high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This changes everything, and it's thrilling. Now there is an interesting distinction between Christianity, particularly Western Christianity, reasoning on the one hand, and traditional Jewish reasoning on the other. For Americans, especially um, because we are so, so linear in our thought, what is really important to us about someone is what we know. You hear it all the time. What are the facts? What information have we been given? Knowledge is king in the West, and it's emphasized in nearly every endeavor of life especially in interpreting scripture. But in Jewish thinking, classical Jewish thinking, the emphasis is often not on what you know, but on what you don't know. In other words, the greater truth is revealed in the information you don't have. This is truly relevant when we come to Melchizedek. Notice we don't know anything about his birth, his background, his family, his upbringing. This is maddening to the Jewish way of thinking in particular. Hebrew scripture focuses constantly on genealogy, origins, family lines. This man begat that one, this begat that, this begat that. Who your people are and where you come from and the means and manner and time of your death, that's what's really important throughout the Bible. Yet hardly any of these normally important questions are answered when it comes to Melchizedek. He just appears. And then he disappears. Yet the New Testament book of Hebrews, which was written to Jews, builds upon this lack of information about Melchizedek. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, acknowledges that we know nothing about this man's background, that he seems to have no beginning, and that his death is not recorded. So in essence, because it's not recorded, he has no end. No beginning and no end. Do you see? 
Rather than try to solve these mysteries, the book of Hebrews simply makes a comparison. Jesus is our high priest after the order of Melchizedek. No beginning, no ending. So therefore, the priestly order of Melchizedek came before the order of Aaronic priesthood and is after it is abrogated. So let me show you a a little closer look at what the author of the book of Hebrews has to say. Having simply stated in the last sentence of Hebrews chapter 6 that Jesus is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, the author begins Hebrews chapter 7 by going deeper into the meaning of Melchizedek. So listen to this from Hebrews chapter 7. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God most high. He met Abram returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness, then king of Salem, which means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. That's Hebrews chapter 7. The author of Hebrews continues like this for another dozen verses or so, um, exploring what may be known of Melchizedek and how great he was, but finally, he makes the all-important application to Jesus. So listen again from the book of Hebrews. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, quote, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's from the book of Hebrews. One school of thought is that Melchizedek was actually Jesus making an Old Testament personal appearance. Others see Melchizedek as a more as a prefigurement of Christ, not Christ himself in the Old Testament, but an Old Testament revelation of Christ and who he was to become. In this thinking, Melchizedek is an Old Testament archetype of Jesus. The Bible doesn't actually say Jesus is Melchizedek. It says that Jesus is our high priest after the order of Melchizedek, after the kind of Melchizedek. Well, I don't want to get bogged down in the debate that surrounds Jesus and Melchizedek, but let's instead learn the lesson that God wants us to learn from this story. Picture the moment. Abram is returning from battle. He's tired, as his men are, at his great expense, at his great personal risk and the risk of other lives around him. They have ridden and fought a terrible battle all night, which they have won. They're caked in blood. They have the clash of battle still ringing in their ears. And at this vulnerable moment, the king of Sodom steps up to Abram and says, take all the money you want. Destinies are hanging in the balance at that moment. Covenants are being tested. Character is being exposed. Then God steps in. Right in the middle of the interaction between Abram and the king of Sodom, Melchizedek suddenly appears to intervene. Wait a minute, he seems to say. Listen to me before you act. Sit down with me and commune with me. Have some bread and wine. Reflect for a moment with God's representation standing near you, the space surrounding you filled with the Spirit of God. Rising from this beautiful moment, Abram turns to the king of Sodom and says, I don't want anything you've got. There's a change 
a different feel from before the appearance of Melchizedek to the disappearance of Melchizedek. Let me, uh, let me say this to you. There, there is a huge lesson here. There is a victory that must be won after the victory. After a battle, after a major battle in your life, whatever that battle is, whether you win or lose, you need a fresh encounter with God. Immediately after his victory over the kings who had kidnapped Lot, but before he answered Sodom, Abram communed with the priest of Salem, the prince of peace. After duking it out with one king or another, even if you win, you'll be exhausted, more exhausted than you think. Tired folks make bad choices, and bad choices can snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. Let the high priest of your faith restore what you lost in the fray. Fresh from his presence, you'll make the next right choice. Second, our covenant with God rests on the foundation of God's perfection, not ours. Abram was hardly perfect. He was a great man, he was a great prophet, but he was not perfect. We are not perfect, and any pretended perfection is a poor disguise. Our covenant with God rests on the character of God. Third, be careful where you pitch your tent. Lot in the story is a cautionary tale. Sodom looked inviting, prosperous, and easier. Long before Lot was kidnapped from Sodom, he was kidnapped by Sodom. Compromise leads toward destruction. And finally, this lesson. Know when to fight and know when to flee. Sounds like Kenny Rogers, doesn't it? You got to know when to fold them, know when to hold them, know when to walk away and know when to run. I will not sing. Life is full of kings. Some kings are threatening, such as an unreasonable boss or an overwrought customer. Some are seductive, like the, the king of Sodom. Like Abram, we must discern which to fight and which to flee. Getting that right may mean the difference between doom and deliverance. Some folks' default position is to fight. Their life is constant turmoil. Everything is a matter of principle. Every hill in their life is worth dying on. For others, flight is always the answer every time. They never find the confrontation muscle, forsaking whom they should defend and never calling a bluff. They are weak. They will never die in a fight, but they will never stand firm for anything. Abram demonstrates that there is a time to fight and a time to leave. He risked his own life to rescue others. There is a time to fight, just not every time. He fought kings, but he fought to rescue the bound, the kidnapped, the lost. The king he did not fight was the king of Sodom. In the presence of a king such as Sodom's, our lives are also at risk, just not from fighting, but from compromise. The answer is not to fight, but to flee. When you come up against the 10 kings in the Valley of Destruction, fight with everything you're worth. When you come in contact with the king of Sodom, leave with nothing, keep nothing, and never look back. I'm glad they joined me for this episode of The Leader's Notebook. Until we meet again, this is The Leader's Notebook, and I'm Mark Rutland. 
To order a copy of Dr. Mark Rutland's new book of Kings and Prophets, please visit the store at drmarkrutland.com. Enter promo code KINGS30 to receive 30% off of each book or call us toll free at 888-823-8772. Thank you for listening to The Leader's Notebook.